This is Market Pathways, your premium guide to global medical device regulation, reimbursement, and policy. Become a part of the global medtech community at mystrategist.com. Hello, and welcome to the Market Pathways podcast. I'm David Fillmore, editor of Market Pathways, a publication providing insights on regulatory reimbursement and other market access policies impacting the global medtech community. Today, I'll be talking to Nadim Yared. Nadim is president and CEO of CVRX, where he's been at it for the long haul, leveraging a complex set of funding, regulatory, clinical, and reimbursement strategies over many years to recently bring the firm's first commercial product, the Barostim Neo, a neuromodulation device for chronic heart failure, to the market. And then this summer, he led the firm through a successful IPO. Nadim is also well-versed and a key advocate on the major market access and policy issues facing MedTech today. He's on the boards of AdFed and the Medical Device Innovation Consortium. And previously, he served as chairman of both of those groups. He's currently board chairman of the medical device CRO, NAMSA. Just a note before my conversation with Nadim begins. One topic we discuss is the Medicare coverage of Innovative Technology or MSET program at CMS. Since Nadim and I spoke several weeks ago, CMS has issued a proposed rule to repeal MSET before it is scheduled to take effect in December. In a follow-up phone call I had with Nadim in the past week, he called that decision a stunning reversal from CMS. Anyway, there's more to come on this topic. CMS has promised a new rulemaking, but I just wanted you to be aware of that key update when listening to our conversation. And now, here's my interview with Nadim. Thanks for joining. Thank you, David. I'm very excited to be here with you today. Great, great. Yeah. Uh, so, so you're the CEO of a public company now. How's that going? Uh, exciting. Uh, really exciting. I, uh, y- you know, it's interesting. Before, uh, you know, when CVRX was private, a lot of my peers would advise me against doing an IPO, saying, you know, it's a time, a time drag and a lot of, you know, time you would be spending with investors. I actually enjoy this a lot. So uh, we're having a blast. Great, great. Well, I know it's been, I know it's been a very, it's, you know, it's been a real journey for CVRX for sure. I think you joined as CEO in 2006, about, about right? Yes, yes, October 2006. It's uh, an overnight success, like they say. <laughs> well, yeah, in med tech and innovative med tech, I think that's, you know, it's within, it's within the, 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 the envelope there. But, but uh, you know, I know, you know, and we've obviously, you know, talked before and just a few months ago, we, we ran a nice um, uh, article, um, my colleague Steve Levin, an article about, you know, uh, profiling some of your reimbursement strategies. But, you know, generally over the years, I know you've leveraged a lot of novel opportunities when it comes to, you know, pushing Barrowstim the opportunity forward in terms of funding, you know, funding for the company, clinical development approaches, leveraging, you know, things like the FDA breakthrough program, and then as, you know, novel reimbursement models, which we've recently written about. So, I'm just curious to get kind of, you know, looking at that overall kind of ecosystem, your regulatory reimbursement, clinical funding, how would you compare that environment, you know, when you started back about 15 or so years ago on this, you know, on this journey to today? So in other words, you know, would you be on more of a sort of a glide path if you're starting off in a barrel stem like technology today than you were then? Is there some different um, challenges you might be facing today? What, what do you think about that? Oh, a very interesting and long question. So, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, we can cover a lot of ground on this one, uh, David. So, th- the world has changed, obviously, right? You know, fifteen years is a long time. Uh, which you know, two thousand and six. This was the year before iPhones, right? So, yeah, it's, we're talking here ancient history, if you think about it from a technology perspective. Yet, some some things are still the same. So, we still have to meet the basic uh, safety and efficacy or effectiveness criteria is depending on this is a 510k or a PMA product uh, to receive uh, regulatory approval uh, to commercialize a product uh, or regulatory clearance, I'm sorry, to commercialize a product in the United States. We still have to go through a lot of processes to get the product paid for, covered by payers, including CMS. But some things had changed, actually. You know, 2006, one of the first advice I got when I joined CVRX as a CEO was to never ask FDA any question. (laughs) So the advice goes to say, if you ask FDA a question, you may get an answer you don't like. 
And here I am right now, uh, 15 years later, I will tell you, ask the question, ask 10 questions, ask 100 questions. You want to know the answer and you want to know what's FDA's thinking and maybe, maybe they have a misunderstanding of what you're trying to accomplish and this is the time to clear it, not at the end of the line. And like we all know, uh, with you know product development, slippage happen at the beginning of the program, not at the end. So the program is late, not at the end when you discover it's late, but at the beginning when you waste the time. That's the same for a regulatory process. Ask those questions ahead of time, get the answers and know what's, what's ahead, but not, not only know what's up uh, waiting for you, but also figure out if the understanding is joined. Now, FDA has changed a lot over these past 15 years, particularly on the uh, culture front. Uh, they're much more an enabling force right now rather than a police stopping force, if you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, they still want to make sure that a product is safe and effective, that the benefit to risk ratio is favorable before they approve a product. But they take much more time upfront to understand what you're trying to accomplish as an entrepreneur and try to help you rather than wait till the end and say yes or no. And, and that makes a big difference, a huge difference. Now, the investment landscape has changed. And I would say smart investors right now have figured it out that there are very little money following early stage medical device product companies that are with a PMA or a 510k de novo pathway. Because those pathways are long, could take up to 10 years or more. But since very few money is following those opportunities, there are fewer of them. So there is the rarity element. And if the VC has a staying power, they could make really good returns because there are very few VCs able to do this. So it created that scarcity effect, but it's very hard for an entrepreneur to go raise money when you're raising a seed round or an A series for a PMA uh, product. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 and I think that that's, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of ins and outs, obviously it is a big question. I know that, you know, the, the other part of this that, you know, has been bigger, um, a maybe bigger challenge now and is, or not, or not a bigger challenge, but a remaining challenge is the reimbursement part of things. And, you know, that's something that really have put, um, kind of at the face uh, now and are probably still facing in terms of while you're on the market. To talk a little bit about you know, that dynamic. Yeah, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, listen, very inter interesting question, reimbursement, and very broad topic. Uh, anytime we talk about reimbursement, you can split it into three different categories, coding, payment, and coverage. And I don't know if the audience know the difference between those three, but coding is the ability of, you know, hospitals or healthcare providers of putting a number associated with your product or your procedure. If that number does not exist, they cannot bill for it. They cannot bill the payers for it. So they cannot even start with this. The second is payment. How much is the payment for this type of procedure? Where is it packed into the different categories and so forth? And the third is the coverage, meaning what are the patients uh, that a, a payer is willing to consider for this therapy? And sometimes that space, that patient population that they are willing to consider could be different than your FDA labeling. So that's why we talk about coding, payment, and coverage. And there has been some progress on these three fronts. Uh, on the payment front, for example, uh, about two years ago, CMS issued uh, the new guidance about products uh, that have received the FDA breakthrough designation. Mm -hmm. So those products, if they need a transitional pass-through payment or a new technology add-on payment, those are add-on payments for new technologies, basically. CMS has streamlined the process and simplified it tremendously. Um, instead of seeking three criteria, now they're looking at one or only two to get those add-on payments. In regards for coding, we're still a little bit behind there. Coding is still a little bit complicated. The process is actually driven by the American Medical Association, and they are acutely aware 
that the system has to be re-looked at and maybe some elements of it have to be tweaked. So uh, that process is sometimes where you hear uh, medical device CEOs or product managers complaining that their technology is not paid for. And actually what they mean, it's, it's not the physician's fee is not paid for because the coding is still a temporary code, for example, instead of being a permanent code. And finally, in regard to coverage, there has been some progress, uh, two progresses, I would say, over the past two years. The first one was done about a year ago. Uh, if you recall, back in the days, if a product is new, novel to the market, that has received a payment code three, a category code three, uh, the product or the procedure itself will be listed by the local medical contract, Medicare contractors, the local max, as being an experimental procedure and therefore in a non-coverage list, automatic. So as soon as the product is there with a code three, they put it automatically in a non-coverage list. CMS issued guidance early last year and all of the seven max implemented it, requiring no more actually, not allowing anymore a bulk denial like this. So if a local MAC wants to deny a procedure, they have to justify why, rather than just put it in bulk all of the novel procedures. And that has made a huge difference because there were many products locked into the space with a non-coverage decision, which had nothing to do with the technology or whether it's reasonable or necessary or anything but it just because it was done as part of this past bulk procedure, and that is gone. And finally, the last element on the coverage is the MSET, <laughs> the Medical Technology Coverage uh, Initiative. So it's the Medicare coverage for innovative technologies. That's what MCIT yeah. stands for. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we call it MSET in short, Medicare, I'm sorry, MCIT, Medicare Coverage for Innovative Technologies. I'm sorry, I had to repeat it to remember it. So the MSIT the uh, process, we have been uh, working on it with CMS. When I say we, I say the uh, medical community, including the medical device industry, have been working on this with CMS for many years. And we thought at the beginning of the year that it's a done deal, but then CMS raised additional questions about the you know, the implementation of it and what it takes to implement it properly. So there was a delay. And now we're hopeful that by December, CMS will issue the final rule that includes the implementation tactics or processes that they were worried about. Uh, some of the questions raised by CMS in regard to this implementation uh, uh, details is, for example, how about if the product is a pediatric product that received a breakthrough designation by FDA. Why would it receive a Medicare coverage knowing that Medicare does not co cover ch children, right? So those are some of the elements. It's more on the, I would say, clarification and the fine tuning rather than the essence of it. My personal belief is that CMS is still committed to this program. CMS is still committed to finding solutions to accelerate access to those novel, innovative breakthrough therapies to patients who need them. Uh, just question of the implementation taking much longer and being much more complicated than any one of us thought at the time. Right, and those questions, of course, did come as, you know, with the change of administration, um, kind of re-looking at things. Do you, do you see that as any sign that was like a, taking a different tact under, um, and you know, different White House, different leaders at CMS? Does that, you know, reverse any of the considerations of the discussions you've had over the years with them or, you know, the MSIT being one tangible sign that they're, you know, they are looking at different things more closely related, related to medical technology. Um, and I know CMS has also, you know, had reorganized recently over the past few years, a little bit more around technology, creating a new office. Do you expect those, you know, the positive momentum in general to continue just some of these questions, like you say, or are there any concerns about different directions being taken um, with the new administration? Yeah, so um, a few answers to your long questions, David. So a few answers. Uh, number one, um, American patients come from all forms and all ages and all backgrounds and all political affiliations. Uh, diseases do not um, discriminate based on a 
Democrat voter or a Republican voter or a non-voter in the United States, right? And as such, whatever policy we do should be void of any um, political inferences or inf influ uh, 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 interpretations. That said, I do understand that sometimes a new incoming administration from whatever sides wants to take a time off, try to understand what the previous administration was trying to do and add their own touch to it and maybe get credit or not. You know, who knows what the motives are, but that could have happened. I don't think this is what happened. I really think that CMS, when they get down to the understanding of what it takes to implement the MSIT rule, they realize that there are so many uh, questions that they were not answered in the initial ruling they did. I do regret a few things though. Uh, we had a, a good uh, comment, public comment period for MSIT in the fall of last year. And the process was followed. And they, I think CMS received hundreds of public comments. Yet two physicians decided not to participate in the established processes and waited until all of the public comments were taken into account and the final rule published. And they timed their comments with the change of administration. And they went very political with letter to editors mm -hmm. or editorials or stuff. I think this is an aberration that should stop. I do not think that a single physician should has words that carry more weight than the other 100 physician who followed the process. Us slowing down and listening to that letter to the editor in any newspaper or peer-reviewed manuscript journal it is, is really a stab of a knife in the back of all of this entire public comment process that many others took it seriously, sat down and wrote to CMS. I think this is the first time and absolutely last time that CMS should listen to any public comment that was not done within their own process. Enough of that, enough of dragging the, you know, the health of patients into the political arena. So I would say I may, maybe I should stop in here, but I do not believe that this time off that CMS has taken is linked to the change of uh, administration. Now, I heard uh, some people saying, well, a Republican administration is more favorable to the industry as a democratic administration. Well, MSIT has less to do with the industry and much more to do with the health of patients. The number of technologies we're talking about in here as a percent of the total number of approvals in the United States is in my estimate 2% or less. So 400 breakthrough devices in the past five years versus 20,000 medical devices approved or cleared. Now, those 400s that were designated at breakthrough, only 23 has been approved so far. I'm sorry, have been approved so far, only 23. So we're talking here a minute number. But when you have a patient who's waiting and waiting and waiting for that life-saving therapy that has be deemed, been deemed by FDA that it has no substitute, and it's meeting an unmet clinical need. You tell the patients, oh, sorry, you know, we don't want to help industry, therefore we are going to punish you. That's not what this is about. This is first and foremost about the patients who need those therapy. This could be somebody you know, somebody you love, or maybe a member of your family. So that's what we're talking about in here. And people do, uh, they tend to forget this. They tend to paint brush, you know, broad pictures in here. They see, uh, some people excited about a program and, and they paint it with large brushstrokes. Again, I do not think that the driver behind the CMS timeout is driven by the politics, but rather is driven by the implementation. I'm hopeful that it will be done by December. If CMS was intent on canceling the program, they would have done it and not wasted their own time. Mm -hmm. If you look at the federal registry, for example, there has been a confidential submission by CMS to the Office of Management of Budget yes. in July, yeah. right? And we, we, legally, we're not allowed to know what's in it, 
but we know somebody there is doing real work. If they intended to cancel this, they would not be doing this work. All right. So the real question then become if they intend to cancel it, what would it look like in December? And we don't know. We hope it's going to be as good as the original uh, program uh, was designed. Sorry about my rant in here, but you have a long questions. Fair enough. I'll take the long answers. More information is better. It does sound like, I mean, is there anything like, you know, they, they did in delaying it to December originally, you know, put a lot of, you know, kind of the details of the questions they had. And maybe some of those were, um, you know, from different sources, including, I think, you know, just to clarify, I think you're referring to New York Times op-ed and a health affairs, you know, op-eds that came in that, you know, were critical of the program. But um, did was there anything particular, were there all the questions that they presented reasonable, most of them reasonable? Are there, what, is there something in particular that you feel like would be a, uh, I don't want to say a poison pill, but something that would, a change made that would dilute it to the point of not being what you would expect and hope from the program? If there's something they could do based on the comments they made that would be really uh, troubling? Or is it, you know, kind of just, uh, there's a lot of room for flexibility in the details of this program in your view? Uh, listen, of the six sections that CMS highlighted as their areas that they need to focus on fixing, only one of them I had trouble with. And uh, we have to be really careful in here about what we're talking about. So that section is where one of the articles, I think the one you mentioned that was an op-ed to the New York Times, mentioned the safety of medical products with elderly patients. The bottom line here is that in the United States, we have a system. We separate HHS, uh, so the Human and Health Services in the United States, separate between FDA and CMS. FDA's role is to ensure that the medical technology products are safe, in that the benefit to risk ratio is favorable. That means the FD is higher than the safety. There is no absolute safety, so it's always relative, but the efficacy has to carry much more weight than the safety carrying concern for that ratio to become favorable for FDA to approve a product. Ultimately, FDA, and by statute, FDA is responsible to ensuring that the products that we receive as consumers or patients or the product that we manufacture and sell as manufacturers are safe and effective. This is not the prerogative of CMS. That comment was talking that CMS should restrict coverage for products not safe for elderly patients. That is incorrect. This is not how the world works in the United States. If there is a concern that a product is not safe for elderly patients, it is up to FDA to regulate this. That's our status. And if the discussion right now is we need to shift that responsibility of safety and effectiveness from FDA to CMS for patients above of 65, fine, let's have this conversation, but has to be taken by Congress. It's not up to us to decide as a, you know, either industry or patients or a government agency. So that I had trouble with a lot. And I think if I were working at FDA right now, I would have been deeply insulted personally of my sister agency telling me that I, working at FDA, I am releasing products that are not safe and effective in elderly patients. I hope you understand here the, what I'm talking about, David. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I think there's a, a natural, um, you know, when we're talking about this interlinkage between FDA and CMS, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a potential to go too far one direction in terms of what the one or the two are, are overlapping. So I think that's, that's an area that is definitely, people are, I think, looking at both directions here of how much CMS might be diving into on CMS uh, on the FDA side or vice versa and making sure it's the correct uh, boundaries. Um. Yeah, so the industry, the medical device industry and FDA have embarked five years ago on a huge undertaking. We call it NEST, the National Evaluation System for Health Technology. Mm -hmm. This is like a super database, basically, that will connect the outcome or output from hospitals 
physician offices, medical device manufacturers, and so forth, so that all of that information could give us early warning signs if we see a safety concern. Now, uh, okay, so it's not a secret. If you look at my picture, you see I've got blue eyes, right? And people with blue eyes are a minority in any country you look at, um, in most countries in the world, right? Now, if you ask me, Nadim, has your product been tested and verified that it's safe in people with blue eyes? Well, then I have to do a subgroup analysis that is done post hoc because I did not pre-specify it and power the endpoint specifically for people who have blue eyes, right? But, but, but you understand what I'm saying. And you start taking uh, parameter by parameter, attribute by attribute, and asking the question, well, have I proven it to, for this product to be safe for people living in Southwest Florida? Well, you get to a point where you can stop doing this and look at it from a patient population perspective and establish system of early signs. Otherwise, you will never approve any product. You cannot drive cars. You would not leave your house. So that's where I think, you know, we have to draw a line sometimes that a product cannot be verified to be safe in every single subgroup that you can think about. There isn't enough patients in the world that have their first name Nadim. And is my product safe if my name is first, my first name is Nadim? <laughs> I don't know, right? I cannot test it. So I have to take some risks there and try my products on me, even though my name could, you know, make me not work with this product, who knows? But what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about here is a concept that is very difficult for a layman to grasp. And that's why we use statistics, because we cannot verify that a technology works on 100% of humans all of the time, because otherwise I have to use it on 100% of the people to know if it works on each one of them. So, um, right, so that, that's why, raising this question at the level of subgrouping to try and using safety as a reason for doing that. Uh, and I think that was the core element of the letter to the editor that you mentioned in the New York Times. Uh, I, I felt this was a sheep shot, just, you know, uh, I, I, you get me started on this, David. You're responsible for that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to raise your blood pressure, but <laughs> when you talk about things like MedTech reimbursement, it's bound to happen. Thanks for listening so far. This interview will continue after this short message. Market Pathways is the number one publication that covers the people, challenges, and opportunities impacting the global medical device, regulatory, reimbursement, and policy spheres. MyStrategist.com is your digital home to access all of our coverage and read the latest issue of Market Pathways. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. Um, uh, but your comments actually dovetail into something else I was, I was, you know, wanted to touch on, which I, you, I know, I think uh, one thing I mentioned in your bio that you, I think just, just started on earlier this year is you joined as a board chairman to NAMSA, which is a CRO. And I know you've also, you know, been involved with MDIC, which does a lot on, you know, data collection, clinical, you know, strategies for med tech clinical uh, research. Um, so, I, you know, I just want to sort of, you know, delve more into the clinical research sort of question with med tech. Um, uh, um, you know, first of all, what was your, I'm just curious, like, you start, what was your interest in, in starting with taking on that board chair position at NAMSA? It's kind of a uh, different direction. Uh, you're, you know, what, what, what caused that? Uh, to, wanting to add that to your portfolio. Oh, I, I love clinical research. Uh, I do. Uh, when I joined CVRX, we were, uh, uh, so uh, I was more on the product development and commercial side of things with 510K products. So my interaction doing clinical research prior to joining CVRX was very, very minimal. So when I joined CVRX and my first task was to enroll a pivotal trial in hypertension, I, 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 I basically read a book of uh, statistics for dummies, basically this is the yellow book to try to understand what are we talking about in here when we say randomized and populations and control groups and uh, powered endpoints and alpha of 0 0.05 and you name it, right? So it was uh, very interesting and very intriguing at the same time. And I think I became dangerous enough in my understanding of clinical science over the years. And I started to understand how this is so important and where we're still at the beginning in the articulation of the science. 
Uh, one of the examples in here is our own trial, BeatHF at CVRX, where the first unblinding showed us that we did not understand everything about the patient population we're studying and we have identified it incorrectly. So we made a change, continued with a confirmatory cohort of patients to confirm the previous one and talk about borrowing using a Bayesian borrowing, some of the data from the previous one, which we didn't need, but that was on the table among the other things that we considered. Uh, those scientific elements are so intriguing. Let me give you another one right now where I'm very enamored with. So when we run a clinical trial, there is no 100% certainty, as I mentioned. If you want 100% certainty, you have to test your product in every single patient and all of the time. Otherwise, you're taking some risk. The question is how much risk are you taking or are you willing to take? So the medical community considers a p-value of 0.05 as the gold standard, which means one in 20, that's 5%, right? Which means your results could be good just by chance, one in 20 times, but 19 out of 20 times, they're good because they're good. That's what a p-value of 0.05. Now, I had a family member um, a few years ago who uh, passed away from cancer. And at the time when we were considering, uh, with his help, what are the treatments available to him? We would have been ecstatic, you know, happy like crazy if there was even a product with a p-value of 0.2 or 0.5, not 0.05. So contrast this with me now researching if I should go and do LASIK surgery for my eyes. Would I take a 5% chance? No, because I don't have to use LASIK. I can still query contact, wear contact lenses and eyeglasses. So that p-value of 0.05 to be used universally is incorrect. We have to think about it more in terms of what is uh, the expectations or the acceptable range for a specific patient in a specific situation, rather than use a blanket statement for everybody. And the previous computational models did not allow us to do that novel computational model do allow for this. Now, the question is, how about the regulatory processes? And how about when I say regulatory, it's not only FDA, but also for payers, CMS, and so forth, but also the medical community. How can we explain that to the medical community? Take another example. Let's say you wanted to test parachutes, if they work or not. <laughs> and you say, all right, fine, let's run a randomized control trial, but I'll do it double-blinded. So the jumper will not know and the guys pushing them would not know if this is a parachute or an empty backpack. Would you do a trial like this? No way. No. It's not equipoised. Equipoised means both have initially the same chance of survival. Um, because of this, you cannot create a randomized control trial. So what do you do? Well, you have to think about how to create a virtual control group, a virtual group of people who jump without a parachute, but you're not going to send people to their death jumping without a parachute. And in technology right now, in computational analysis, we are able to do this. We are able to create a group of virtual patients to be the randomized control arm of a given trial. But to do, the, to do so, you have to assemble a lot of data early on on this patient population so that you can assemble from it what would be a virtual control arm for your trial. So the beauty of this is when we have an invasive therapy and we're trying to do it in a randomized control way, we can now blind it or we don't have to because we can create the control group artificially. Right. You know, with, with the pharmaceutical product, years ago we discovered that a placebo pill works very well. It's a sugar pill basically we don't have a placebo pill for devices you know if you're doing a, an alvad surgery you cannot fake an alvad surgery to create a, <laughs> a you, you know i think we don't have right. a placebo so being able to create this control group will be not only as cost saving and a time saving for trials it will also means the ability to do a randomized control trial at all in some situations. And that's what the science and those uh, computational methods would allow us. So you see how I'm excited talking about this topic? It is exciting. 
Yeah. And what is opening it is not only, you know, faster computers and others, but also the availability of data. Uh, what you did not mention as well is I serve on the board of an innovative company called Nanoware. Nanoware has developed, uh, think about it, a garment. This is, think about it like a T-shirt that has multiple sensors. So when a patient leaves a hospital after a surgery, we can instrument them at very easily. And we collect a lot of information on a beat by beat, every single beat of the heart. You can collect temperature, respiration rate, postures and so forth and get this information. That's what big data will allow us to do is get so much more information than, that we, than, than we can analyze and extract the essence of the, you know, the, 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 those virtual patients I was talking about to create that virtual group. So a lot of things are very exciting happening right now in medical research and clinical research. So it was absolutely the right time for me to join the board of NAMSA. And so do you feel like, I mean, some of these computational, um, you know, uh, innovations and things like you working with virtual patients, are those, I mean, how much would you put that in the more still testing phase of, 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 of or, or more in the practice phase right now in terms of you know, companies carrying out trials, at least in some sense, using some of those techniques and or regulators, as you said, actually, you know, accepting some of that stuff. I know this is some of these things, I believe, you know, you've worked on with MDIC, which FDA is involved in and CMS, but, you know, where, where are these, some of these tools in terms of getting towards, you know, more routine um, use in the ecosystem? Uh, it, it's d d different level at different uh, different stages. Uh, it's a think about it as a continuum. Uh, Bayesian statistics is now starting to get more and more used. It's once when you think about Bayesian statistics, it's actually more logical than frequentist, but it's harder to implement without a lot of computational power. That's why the word used the frequentist approach, the traditional a p value of zero point zero five, for example, which is a frequentist approach. Now. We're seeing more and more trials using Bayesian approach or some form of Bayesian borrowing. The example of BTHS, the trial that got Barostem approved by FDA, is another good example. Actually, in a meeting with the board of Advamed, Dr. Bill Mazel from FDA mentioned that he was looking at the way the BTHS trial has been conducted as maybe a possible way for the future of trials to be prospectively designed where you basically unblind on purpose in the middle of the trial so that you can adjust your sample size, your efficacy, your patient population, uh, uh, eligibility criteria and so forth, and then continue and then use this, these type of statistics to correct for what you've done. Um, so, the, the, you know, we're, we're not where I think we can be, but we have to start, you know, uh, like I say, we have to walk before we run. And those baby steps are becoming more and more meaningful right now in the life product cycles of medical device technologies. Uh, you know, with everything I talked about, like the patient value and the virtual patient group, are they, they, are they there yet? Some of it, like propensity score, uh, propensity matching is happening um, as we speak to correct for imbalance of baselines in clinical trials. So elements of it are starting to get used uh, slowly. That makes sense. By the way, yeah. Um, interestingly, when you think about all of the people you need to convince when you design a trial with a novel method, FDA is the easier to deal with as compared to other groups such as payers or the medical community. You know, the guideline committee, for example, or just the medical community at large. Um, it seems to me these days, FDA is very much progressive, at least the group that I dealt with the most, they're very much progressive. And once they, their own really top-notch statisticians validate the model, then they embrace it within FDA. Now, the question is, how do you convince other constituencies that this is valid or not? A case in point, the BTHF trial. Um, FDA worked with us on designing this approach. And then we have to go, we had to go and explain this to the communities, the medical community and so forth. And often they would ask us, hey, do you mind if we call FDA and check with them? I would say, sure. By all means, I encourage you to call FDA because it's a model that they validated. And, and it's surprising sometimes, but that's the world we live in. That's interesting. And was that 
productive? In other words, did that were were they able to get positive? Uh, was was that a was that a way for them to move forward by getting a, you know positive feedback from FDA about the approach? Yeah, let me give you one public example. It's available public information. So, uh, in the editorial of the uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology manuscript, that where the results for trial were published, uh, the editorialist asked us if it's okay. Uh, not us, me, Sivarex, but ask the writer of the manuscript, Dr. Zeil and his colleagues, if it's okay for them to reach out to FDA directly and ask questions. And they mentioned, they acknowledge at the end of the editorial letter that uh, they they reach out to FDA and got feedback from FDA on this process. So at least we don't know what the feedback is, but we know that they did have this communication. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that and that FDA yeah. is willing to do it as well. Yeah, if you read the uh, manuscript, the I'm sorry, the let, uh, the editorial, uh, it was in June, uh, 2020 in Jack J J A C C. Uh, the editorial was written by Professor Jim Janusi and his colleague. In the last paragraph, he mentioned he acknowledges a person from FDA. Hmm. Okay, worth checking out. Let's, why don't we, towards like sort of the, the, the final uh, section of our discussion, kind of switch over to maybe some impacts of, obviously we're still in this, you know, COVID pandemic, um, you know, hard to, you know, as a frustrating and, and challenging situation that we all find ourselves in. I'm curious to get some of, you know, your thoughts on, um, you know, some of the impacts and some of the maybe more lasting impacts. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of potential. First of all, we're talking about clinical research, and that's an area where there's, I'm sure, been some 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 impacts, and and in some other areas. But what's your sort of top line? What what are the what are the sort of some of the big lessons learned in terms of both sort of the device industry practices and also on the regulatory policy environment when it comes to um, you know what we're coming out of here and dealing with this um, pandemic situation. Uh, yes, so um, because we are a, are a publicly traded company, I can only comment on what we've already said about this in previous quarters. So uh, let me talk about, so I will talk everything except the Delta variant, okay? Uh, let me talk about last year. Uh, actually, it's a good, uh, good case to uh, articulate one point. When we, um, when we decided to commercialize our product at HRS 2020, uh, we did not know that the pandemic will hit in March of 2020 and will shut the country down. And as a small company, it was a double whammy on us. So basically, you're, you're, you need to go and establish relationships and educate physicians and sign contracts and agreements with hospitals and do all of this. And at the same time, they need to have a patient's flow happening and a patient's willing to undergo a procedure. And they should have bandwidth and ability to do a procedure that is not urgent, that could be delayed a month or two. We, we use the word elective for it, even for cardiology. You cannot delay it forever, but can you delay a pacemaker procedure by a couple of weeks or a month? Sometimes, yes, you can, right? So that's why we use the word elective about this. Now, because we're a smaller company, it hit us harder than larger companies, simply because we do not have a reason nor an excuse to be in the hospital. You see, if my sales rep was selling another product and that other product was being used in the OR, we would have had access. And while supporting the case on product A, we could be talking to the physician and the nurse about product B. But when you only have one product, you don't have that opportunity. You're locked out. So that was really hard on us, you know, March, April, and May, and June last year. The second thing that uh, was concerning, and actually th there was some good news in that, uh, and we've seen it now with the CardioMEMS data, is the fact that FDA was paying a lot of attention of what's going on in cardiology. FDA has a group with uh, the uh, academicians um, in different uh, sub 
factors or diseases. For example, we have one for heart failure, we have one for arrhythmia and AF, and, and we have one for structural heart, particularly valves and so forth. They call these the collaboratory. And usually they're run by an academic group of physicians, FDA being a member and few industries are part of, part of the group, but the group is run by doctors. And the heart failure collaboratory raised the concern early on that for companies conducting clinical trials in heart failure, such as CardioMAMS, the number of hospitalizations could be skewed. And some people might prefer or end up, might end up, unfortunately, dying at home rather than go to the hospital because of a congestive heart failure events. In some of the statistics that we've seen from the Heart Failure Society of America, you know, in the highest month here, we're talking about April of 2020, more than 50% reduction of heart failure hospitalization in the United States. So we started speculating, wow, people are not going and eating a McDonald's. Maybe that's why they're not having those events. But in fact, it was not that. It was the fear of going to a hospital and people prefer to either, you know, try to survive at home, and some of them did not, unfortunately. And the reason why I say it's not McDonald's is right after, you know, July, August, the rates of hospitalization came back to normal levels. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems to have affected a trial called GUIDE-HF that CardioMEMS, uh, that means Abbott, was conducting. And you may have seen the results published a couple of days ago or presented a couple of days ago and published at the same time. Uh, there in this trial, they showed the, you know, the product doing very, very well and seeing a good clear separation between the two arms until COVID hit. And then both of the arms collapsed. So then you cannot see a separation anymore. So those are some of the elements that FDA early on asked all of the companies conducting clinical trials, please take note, put this information in your database, specify different ways of analyzing the data, would like to see this done prospectively before you get to the end of your trial. So that's you know, something that people don't realize that sometimes FDA actually tells you or advise you and give you hints about how they will be thinking about analyzing the data in the future. Right. So that's that's one way of how COVID affected clinical trials uh, per se. Uh, the industry at large, I mean, the, the best uh, the best thing you could do is uh, read the quarterly reports of the larger uh, uh, multinational medical device companies like Medtronic or Abbott or Johnson & Johnson, and there they cover the full gamut of different sectors. I think they, that's where you may get the most information about the number of procedures and impact and mm -hmm. so forth. Yeah. So when it comes to going forward, I mean, obviously, yeah, there has there was, you know, the proactive steps by companies and FDA to, to look at the impact of those trials ongoing, for instance. Obviously, there's been a lot of, you know, just FDA working with companies has been a lot of different in general over this period, over this COVID period just because of trying to get certain products very quickly in terms of emergency and, and, and things like that, while maybe others uh, in a different category. But do you, do you, do you, what do you see as like practice changes, whether it's in how one you know, looks about clinical trial or how one maybe interacts with FDA or, or, or you know, related um, regulatory you know, payers? Is there any sort of lasting sort of changes to how we um, acted in, in, in this experience that will, will take us through? Um, beyond beyond the pandemic yes. maybe be helpful. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, not the way many people would think, which is the emergency use authorization. I thought this was a short-term uh, stopgap that FDA had to do, but more in terms of the uh, virtualization of data collection uh, and visits. So uh, th that's one way where clinical trials in the future will be somehow different than in the past. You know, we'd like to have more data, more uh, at-home data or outside of the office data and rely less and less on hospital-based data. Not that we don't want hospital data, actually it's the best place to get really good quality data. But we've seen in the, in the COVID situation where even for a congestive heart failure events, patients are afraid to go to the hospital 
imagine somebody in a clinical trial saying, well, I've got my six month visit now, I need to go to the hospital. Then they, they will not, right? So all of this, is, as much as we can, rely on tests that can be done at home or remotely as much as possible uh, in clinical trials in the future, we're gonna see the trend continuing. So more wearable sensors, more patient reported outcome, uh, rather than only hospital-based tested outcomes and so forth. So yeah, that will be a lasting change for the good, actually. I think this will be a good change. So in general, you know, post-COVID, but also, uh, you know, just the overall ecosystem, are you optimistic about, you know, are you optimistic about where things are going um, for, for sort of the, in terms of the environment for MedTech getting out there and on the market and into patients? Um, both in the U.S. and globally. Obviously, it's a global industry, and the pandemic was a very global situation. And there's a lot of global changes in the world happening. Are you? What's your overall optimism uh, going forward? You know, David, if you listen to me when I uh, took over as chairman of Advermed in 2017, I I kept repeating to everybody who would want to, who would accept to listen to me that there isn't a better time to invest in medical technology than now. And this was in 2017. And some people criticized me back then saying, well, if you keep repeating this, maybe there'd be less pressure on politicians to help us fix some of the structural issues we have. But I kept repeating this over and over because I believed in it. And if you've invested in MedTech in 2017, I think you would have done really, really well today. And that's just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Um, I'm still very optimistic and uh, maybe that's, uh, maybe I'm because I'm wired this way, but also because I've seen all of the new initiatives that are, are on the horizon. And sometimes you see a dark cloud, like a delay for the MSTET implementation and people think, wow, okay, so that good run is over. Well, no, those are simple obstacles along the way. Uh, nothing happens as a straight line. But overall, with all of the other initiatives I'm talking about still undergoing right now as we speak, and this technological breakthroughs with artificial intelligence, machine learning software, and big data, so availability of wearable sensors and so forth, there's so much we could do as well. So I'm, I'm super optimistic. Well, great. I think optimism is a great place to close out the conversation. Uh, always leave on a smile. Um, so, so thank you, Nadeem. I, I really appreciate you know you talking today. I appreciate what you do, and and good luck with Barrowstem. Hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, David. Thank you for the uh, for the discussion. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen.